Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome back to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. <laughs> Go shoot, Luke. Is it possible that I have spent the last eight months imagining that we've been recording episodes only to find out that in reality, once I'm awoken from that illusion to find out that I, in fact, uh, was blue-pilled and was not recording any episodes for Really True Fiction? <laughs> no, I, I think you're you're pretty dead on on that. <laughs> I, I believe that is the red pill reality. That oh, okay. In. So I'm talking, yes. I was red-pilled. Okay. I wasn't totally sure. I appreciate no, your. No. Uh, you, you were living in the unfortunate reality that uh, that humanity produced with uh, nuking the skies. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate uh, your undead battery. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> yes. So, if you are listening to this episode way long after it's been released, you might not totally realize, unless you look at the dates, that this is our first recording of a really true fiction episode since January of 2021. So we have taken a bit of a hiatus and I guess I just want to like start by saying I'm so happy to be back and I've really actually, well, not, this isn't a surprise, but I've missed you, David. I've I've missed talking to you. (laughs) No, I'm glad we're, we're getting back at it. Yeah. Fans of the show will probably know that we've just had a number of life upheavals in our two lives in 2021. So it just feels so good to be back at it i mean we've both started different podcasts in the meantime yeah Yeah. in between uh january and this moment i recorded 91 episodes of a different podcast exactly yeah and so i'm just so excited to be back at it because like this weirdly it feels like i'm getting back to my roots yeah yeah we've (laughs) we've become podcasters luke (laughs) yes so in the spirit of returning, we wanted to come back with an episode based on a story that has just a lot of resonance in the culture. And serendipitously enough, this December, the fourth installment of this franchise is coming out to much anticipation, I would say. Today, we're going to be doing the 1999 film, The Matrix. Yeah, which unbelievably is 22 years ago now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so obviously... The Matrix is back in the kind of zeitgeist again because Matrix 4 Resurrections comes out around Christmas this year. So that's why it like occurred to me this is the episode we should do upon a return. Yeah, man, there's so much to say about this movie, but even before we talk about it like for movies like this that came out when we were alive and we can kind of remember like I just want to get some of your reflections David on what you remember about the Matrix maybe when it came out or the first time you saw it some of your like memories around this film 
I just remember uh, a couple of things. One, I was definitely obsessed with how cool all of the characters were. And I, I went through a phase where I liked to wear sunglasses and trench coats and thought they were the coolest thing. And this was probably 12-year-old me, so maybe a year or two after it came out. And for a while, my profile picture on MSN was me pointing a gun at or a BB gun at the screen. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people were worried that I was like some kind of serial killer. But sure. Just because I, I mean homeschool thought I was cool <laughs> wanting to you know wanting to give off this uh, illusion of of being a tough guy if so, you're um, if you're homeschooled you don't have to go far to go postal right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so it was definitely had an influence in my life honestly what I remember from when I was younger watching that movie primarily was loving the fight scenes thinking they were so cool, the idea of downloading uh, certain skills and ability into your mind is obviously a um, very appealing to a young person who wants to, you know, be great. And then obviously the conception of the one and, you know, just being able to manipulate reality. And I think the scenes that really stuck with me is one when they walk into the basement of the military building and, and they have their, you know, epic montage of just destroying everything and then the crumbling pillars as they as the elevator doors close so that was definitely a, a thing i remember quite vividly and then him stopping the bullets is another it's just like there's a a triumphalism to it that uh kind of there's a, a huge catharsis from the movie when he does that especially obviously lining up from morpheus saying i'm saying when you're ready you won't have to right mm-hmm. uh, about He's saying, are you saying I'll be able to dodge bullets? And he's saying, no, I'm saying when you're ready, you won't have to. <laughs> yeah. So there's just, I mean, there's a lot to discuss about. And then this, you know, those were the things that, you know, really stuck with me from 12-year-old me. But rewatching it, uh, it definitely holds up in a different sort of way, I think. Because uh, I think at the age I'm at now, the thoughts I'm having about what's being said are very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my memory of this film was, so yeah, it came out in 99, so I was 12, so I was old enough to kind of be aware of, you know, like, movie trailers and um, magazines that were talking about pop culture and that kind of thing, like, we didn't have cable, but I had enough access to cable television at friends' houses to, like, kind of be aware of the fact that this was, like, the movie to see in 1999 which is often considered one of the greatest years for films ever like the amount of great films that have stood up from 1999 is pretty mind-blowing you know obviously this one but fight club uh, magnolia was 99 american beauty not in the same realm but phantom menace came out in 99 like it was just there were there were tons and tons and tons of movies that came out that year but i remember the matrix Uh, marketing the most right like on this day enter the matrix we're just like posters up everywhere about this so like this movie was a cultural phenomenon before it was even released you know like yeah this and and in a sense like back then it would be the same as like when endgame came out for our younger listeners and how everyone was was waiting for that moment and, and excited about it and it was a cultural phenomenon the matrix was but in a different way because it everyone was excited about it and nobody knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. So that actually was like, that's a perfect segue because 
in the last month, I don't know, I heard a clip of Quentin Tarantino talking about The Matrix on some podcasts, and he was saying that what The Matrix managed to do is it managed to get like a theater full of people, an entire audience on opening night on the edge of their seats to watch a movie that they didn't know what it was about. Like, yeah. And in a sense, you always don't know what a movie is going to be about in its story. But like because of the groundbreaking technical innovations, um, like the bullet time feel of like how they did cameras like in a 360 degree and that's how they were able to like shoot the bullet time where like the camera moves at normal speed but the movie's moving at like micro or like you know like very very slowly to give the impression of like you're in the time dodging the bullets with neo or the agents or that kind of thing the action and the technique had been a huge part of the marketing plus the aesthetic was so unique quentin tarantino had the point like everyone's in the theater ready to be like wowed by one of the best marketed movies of all time and they don't have any fucking clue what it is at all right and then they are wowed <laughs> yeah, right? yeah 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 every like that's like how often do you know you go in with high expectations and it doesn't reach those expectations mm -hmm. but i think part of the fact is the expectations were so nebulous of what it was going to be that that really got people excited for sure and i think like at the time it was a huge hit and it was a massive movie and everybody i knew saw it and i think probably like looking back what made it such a big hit at the time were the technical elements and the action set pieces which were quite innovative even looking back at 1999 graphics and cgi are not as cheesy as a lot of other movies that used CGI from this era look, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And it had that whole like kind of cyberpunk look, and the 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 difference of aesthetic between the the real world like cyberpunk and the Matrix sleek and shiny and very stylized look was so cool. So like it had the cool factor and the action factor, like you mentioned that basement scene which was so good and the amount of training that the actors went through to be able to pull off a lot even though there's like wires and stuff you know there's all these behind the scenes behind the scenes stuff of like Carrie Ann Moss just getting her ass kicked by some of these set pieces that she had to do in like a skin tight vinyl suit right. but like she you know like she yep. just so believed in the movie and was so um, inspired by it that like they just work the, the actors had to work so hard at this movie to to yeah. pull it off and the stunt doubles obviously as well but then also i think what really did take people by surprise is what a deep and compelling story it actually is and how philosophical it is um i would submit this is the most blatantly philosophical mainstream film maybe ever right like obviously yeah, there are i mean it's cer certainly bl yeah, blatantly i would completely agree like you don't have to dig very far to, to see what it's trying to say there's a lot of um like more indie type films that are maybe more philosophical and waking life by linklater for example is is they talk about philosophy but the matrix being a simulation i mean like that's one of the most famous or most popular um talking points in kind of like the podcast world i listen to is like simulation theory <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still out there. And I mean, and it has had a deeply profound like social impact to like the level of Lord of the Rings or, or even Star Wars with the with the red pill, blue pill, you're living in a fake world or a real world. Like that is like culturally, I think there's people that use the term red pill that have not even seen the Matrix because they're too young to like, or maybe they've seen it, but there, I'm sure there are people who haven't who know that term and what it means simply because of the, how deeply this is ingrained in pop culture now. 
for sure. Like that was that was going to be what I was thinking about. Like why it sustained itself so well is that it. Um, well, a it it was um, bringing us AI dystopias before it was cool. Yeah, yeah <laughs> which again yeah. is uh, you know like. Part of, I mean, obviously, like the Terminator kind of did that too, but the Terminator is obviously not nearly as fleshed out as the Matrix is in its kind of world building, right? Oh, absolutely. Terminator is more just like um, a hack and slash movie in a lot of ways, with like throwing things together. Mm-hmm. And the Matrix is is uh, that's why I think in a lot of ways it's similar to that Lord of the Rings, Star Wars level of importance even though it doesn't quite reach that level but a it's the trilogy people got more and more excited for each release Mm -hmm. but b it's world building like they're literally you could explore that world there's things you want to know about that world there's questions that are never answered that you know fans have spent decades thinking about and writing about Mm-hmm. And probably one of the reasons why the Matrix doesn't quite hold water to, you know, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, even like Indiana Jones type trilogy type things is that the second and third movies just aren't as good. I actually watched Reloaded and Revolutions before recording as well, even though we're not going to talk about them today. And Matrix Reloaded is not bad. Like there's a lot of it that is quite enjoyable. And that freeway scene is mind-blowingly good. I really didn't like Matrix Revolutions. I thought the third film, like 80% of the film is in the real world. So there isn't even a Matrix in (laughs) the Matrix movie hardly. (laughs) I just found, (laughs) maybe this is an insight into this movie. I found the real world scenes not nearly as entertaining as the Matrix scenes. Right. <laughs> Which yeah. is probably the point. Although I did kind of like the battle for Zion in that one. Well, I like liked the, the fight, but it just kind of became guns versus Sentinel thing. Right. Which, you know, fine. It's an action movie, whatever. I found Matrix Revolutions didn't have as much of the kind of like theorizing and philosophical kind of... Um, like you remember the presence of Morpheus in the first movie, I think way yeah. more than the second two. Yeah, and and, and that's a much better better version of the character in in my opinion and then maybe just before we like really dig into it and this will probably be part of what we talk about today is that um i felt like the legacy of the matrix is that maybe on purpose maybe accidentally because it was made in 99 like this is like right at the time of like what is the internet gonna be we don't know right yeah it had become mainstream the internet had become mainstream by 99 but not developed what it what certainly what we know now and there are a number of things in the matrix that are seminal to what the internet has become true and i think that's kind of what lends itself to it what will probably be its timelessness is that a lot of what is being talked about in the matrix is a kind of analog for the internet itself and the world that we build through a virtual reality. Ooh, I like this. And this how we envision it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously you mentioned the most specific one, red pill, red pill, blue pill is like, that's internet 101 at this point. Oh, uh, yeah. And that came from the matrix, right? Like that wasn't, I mean, that might've been a exist. thing. It didn't exist. 
as it didn't idea, exist in the think. pop culture's uh, psyche before the matrix as well as i the expression a glitch in the matrix like at least in the english speaking world is a totally saturated expression that means like a glimpse behind the curtain or like you see yeah. something you weren't supposed to see it's an expression that captures a real psychological element of human life that didn't exist 23 years ago Right. Yeah, there might have been a different absolutely. expression, but everyone knows what you mean when you say, oh, that was a glitch in the Matrix kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so just to have even with those two examples to have a movie that exists that came out in my lifetime that's responsible for major cultural touchstones is fascinating. Like to me, True. this is this is a fascinating movie because of its impact on the real world, which is hilarious <laughs> because. Yeah. This whole movie well, is I mean, about the still, real world. To, to this day, we, uh, I mean, we get like, what if I told you? That's still a huge meme, right? Mm. And that's that's the Matrix. Uh, that's everywhere. Red pill, blue pill, as we talked about. Even the idea that um, like you're not in touch with reality. You've kind of lost your way, that you're lost in, in, a, in a fake story. I, I want to talk about that because I think... Um, I think that's playing a big role in kind of what's going on right now. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think probably everyone can tell by our tones that we really think highly of this movie. And again, it's because it's so, so aesthetically pleasing and it was so aesthetically original. There just had never been a movie that really looked like this movie before, right? Like if you think about a movie that came out before this where like Men in Black, okay, they wear sunglasses and dark suits, but... This movie is so smooth and so stylized in its movements and in its portrayal. And even just the soundtrack, like the music in the background was so reminiscent of that like late 90s, early 2000s. I don't even know the name of the genre. You know what I mean? Like Just this like aggressive, not quite new metal type music, but like it, it also made me nostalgic for like that kind of era of songs that I don't even really like yeah, those songs. nostalgic too in a, in a big way. Yeah. No, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. But uh, just before we do, I want to say welcome back, everybody, to Really True Fiction. We are so excited to be making episodes again. If you like Really True Fiction, you can uh, find us on Facebook. We also have an uh, email, uh, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. And you can subscribe on any podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you because until we start connecting with other people, we don't know for sure if we're in the matrix or not. <laughs> <laughs> Are we just screaming into the void? The matrix is just a great uh, metaphor for solipsism or something. <laughs> so um, let's start with the concept of this movie before we talk about any characters or anything. I think that'd be best. So like, Tell me your musings on the Matrix, the real world versus the simulation versus do we choose the simulation versus like choosing to leave it, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I think, as, as I said earlier, the profundity of this movie was kind of lost on me to a degree as a, as a 12, 13-year-old. But now as I reflect on how the things I've learned about how, what it means to be a human and what we kind of tend to do as humans. I'm just struck by the fact that this is a, this is so universal. This is archetypical, right? And it's archetypical because these are literally the choices that we make 
one of those choices is our do and the the sad part is we can't go back once we've made the choice to live in reality right mm-hmm. and maybe not not the sad part but the uh the 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 part that is conveyed so well in this is like reality is rough like they've got this gruel that they eat every day that just has the vitamins <laughs> they need yeah and there be and you know humanity is enslaved and this tiny little resistance that's trying to hold this small island of truth against this overwhelming enemy that doesn't want to destroy them that just wants to enslave them i can't help but think like in a sense this plays on so many levels one of them being you know humanity is enslaved by the illusions that we create to deal with the fact that we don't want to you know we don't want to look reality in the face we don't want to talk about the hardships that other people face we don't want to talk about the problem of evil we don't want to talk like we don't want to really reflect on our own mortality. We don't want to, we run away from and, and create these distractions. I guess the best way to, to compare it to the movie is that scene where he's eating the steak and he says, you know, I know this isn't real, but it's so good, right? <laughs> and, but that isn't enough for him. He doesn't want to know that it's not real. He, he wants to so delude himself from reality that he can just continue to live in that fantasy um, because the fantasy is better than reality in his mind. And yet, it's, so that's this distinction between the people who prefer freedom in a you know desolate world to luxury and fantasy. And like, <laughs> I guess one of the thoughts that I had that I really wanted your thoughts on was... Why do you think that people preferred, or let, let's say Trinity and Morpheus and Neo and Tank and, and, and these ones that preferred freedom, the people who'd come out of the Matrix, they preferred freedom. I guess Tank, not, not so. He was born into it. But why did they prefer freedom to the illusion if, if freedom was in a, in a world that was so desolate? Uh, well, <laughs> I guess because it is real you're actually bringing up um, a whole kind of blue pill red pill concept i wanted to talk to you about especially in regards to cypher and that whole element of the film but um for the movie it starts way before that at least with neo because part of the reason that i guess morpheus knows to look out for neo is that neo is a um in the matrix but he seems to be one of these computer hackers that has become self-aware of the Matrix, right? Yeah, or at least is aware that it exists and keeps hearing about it. Well, it's on yeah. message boards, right? It's like uh, yeah. if our real life is a simulation, <laughs> it'd be like you and I asking if this is a simulation. Who is who is or, running or this like, you know, Elon Musk has been talking about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. We yeah, all yeah, are yeah. aware <laughs> that it's there. Elon is Musk there is to... the Neo of reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly seems to have hacked reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I guess it's just, it comes down to, um, I've been reading a lot of Karl Popper for the other podcast I've been doing, and he doesn't go too deep into like what are the evolutionary purposes for this, but he just said human beings just kind of have a desire to know things. And it's kind of inscrutable why we have that in a way that um, a lot of other animals don't seem to behave in such a way that they have an inscrutable desire to learn more about the world, right? Like 
animals have much more fidelity to the instincts from their DNA to survive. Yeah. And their yeah. loops, their loops are a lot smaller than human beings are in terms of like how far out software based they're willing to go for their environment versus hardware hardwired into them. So there's this great line from Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying that they say that humans aren't blank slates, but we're blanker, we're blanker slates than any other animal on the planet. No, I like so that. So we're, yeah. we're, we're not all software, but we're a lot more software than any other animal. Yep. Yep. And so with Neo, why would he be asking about the matrix unless he cared to learn about it? Right. And I, and I just, I do think that there is some sort of inscrutable pull in human beings to know reality as best as they can. And of course there are evolutionary reasons for that in terms of like fitness and adaptability to a new environment. It's clear why that genetically would be in our uh, slipstream as well. But that obviously can transcend into the more ethereal elements of our life. And it gets compromised all sorts of ways with competing incentives, political allegiances, tribal allegiances, all the kind of more superimposed, not totally unnatural, but maybe not before that desire to know elements of humanity, which is like fitting in with my social group or whatever, like the different ways that we self-censor or remove ourselves from that pursuit that I think still kind of pulls at most people when left to their own their own soul, let's say. When left in the in the loneliness of just my soul and the world, I want to keep learning and keep knowing. And maybe that's part of it is that there's just something in a lot of people that would rather live in reality in a worse circumstance for themselves or to feel like they're living in a manufactured reality by other people specifically now in the matrix it's other machine like it's machines it's metal like apparently conscious metal that um mm -hmm. has orchestrated this and that's like there's a lot of uh, as a technical thing like there are a lot of conceits of this movie that have to kind of like expedite philosophical thought experiments <laughs> that yeah that make it not quite exactly the same as like thinking about it for you or me uh, and we can get into those more because you can't do that in a movie and be interesting right like you can't just no. you could have the machines of the matrix be just a more evil group of people, but then who's doing, maybe they're in a simulation. Like when would you ever know? But you could ask that about the matrix. How do you know that the metal machine reality? Well, is that's like one of the theories, right? Is that actually Zion is a, is a program too, right? And you escape and it just provides a escape hatch for people like, because they're trying to figure out where they are. So there's this theory that goes around in the, in the, matrix fan community that zion is just another program right that yeah now i will admit my own bias here is like that's kind of why i don't take too seriously the notion that maybe we live in the matrix now or yeah or a yeah. simulation not because it the logic isn't there but because it'd be impossible to know and then impossible to care about one way or the other because it'd be impossible to know and yeah. so like yes there, it could be matrixes all the way down to where? Well, forever, right? And it's like, right. that's why to me, I care about the matrix as a metaphor, not as a metaphysic. Uh, that's yeah, kind and, of and my- Going back to the, to the metaphor, let's let's 
boil this down into even more reality, let's call it. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that people cling to their illusions? Let's call it their matrices, right? So like, what, uh, yeah, I agree. It's an interesting thought experiment on the philosophic sense of, you know, how do we know that we're not in a matrix? We don't. And, and that's a fun thing to talk about sometimes. But we do see these matrices all around us, these ideologies that run our lives, mm -hmm. that dictate, how, that, that do dictate. This was the, what struck me about watching it most recently is we live in these ideologies that do dictate our actions, that do dictate how we see reality and even what we believe is possible in reality, right? So I take, and, and they, there's tons of studies on this, but take someone who's, uh, raised in poverty, often they have self-limiting beliefs about themselves that mean even when presented with the kind of opportunities that others are, they don't have the internal framework to seize them or to make that reality into some, their own reality into something different. Mm. Or similarly, uh, the person who clings to the idea that, um, you know, that they can heal cancer with special oils, right? Smelling oils or, or the person who truly and deeply believes that horoscopes are going to dictate their future. That this, I mean, these people live in matrices, right? And, and I'm not even saying that they're necessarily wrong because I think that, you know, that begs the question, what do we actually understand about reality? And as a finite being, it's pretty hard to say what we do understand and what we don't. But what I am saying is, Given the choice, like, I guess, how do we dictate to ourselves whether or not we're living in a matrix? And is everyone essentially living in a matrix? And this waking up that we do to reality might just be a waking up to another way of thinking that's also pre-programmed. And, I, and I, I take, like, the view of, like, communists versus capitalists, right? If you both are living in these predetermined constructs of the world that they've that they've been fed more than they've been built or that they've built themselves not only their individual actions but the actions of everyone else who believes in a similar thing is dictating real consequences for people's lives let's take uh the gulag in russia for example right because of what people believed about the revolution because of what people believed about the government it transformed tens of millions of people's lives into suffering and death because the majority were like, well, this is just how things are. How do you see, you know, this, these, the ideologies that we exist in and the, and the systems of thought that we live in as matrices? Oh, geez. The easy one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going for big themes. Right yeah. Now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I first would note that again, I think a lot of the modern reasons for diverging matrices for people's lives is the internet which is interesting again because this movie so influenced the internet yes and our language around the internet well for me i always think about it like well what problem are we trying to solve so mm -hmm. in the interim of since we've last recorded really true fiction probably the thinker that i've been meditating on the most on his work is Karl popper like i mentioned before and one of his philosophical axioms, I guess you would call it, is that um, 
philosophy is really only doing its job if it's trying to solve problems in the world. The moment philosophy becomes its own discipline for its own sake and becomes internal, it totally misses the point of its existence in the first place. I guess with The Matrix, my first question is, what problem is being solved for this person by their particular matrix? What are they looking to alleviate or overcome? Because unless they're like a total lunatic, I suppose, or psychopath, like people have reasons for their things, even if they're not always consciously articulated to themselves. And some of these reasons can be unconscious or even like hunger. Who knows? Maybe hunger is one of the reasons why people search out particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or or loops. OK, but on, a, on the flip side, a lot of people kind of I, I think the idea in the Matrix, like the foundational thing is these people are blindly living under this illusion, not even aware that it is an illusion mm-hmm. and not even aware that they are being fed, well, let's call it lies, because anything that's unreal is a lie to a degree, right? Well, I think that there's a huge difference between most of the people in this movie in The Matrix and like Cypher. Like to me, that's the most interesting distinction between people in The Matrix are people who are unknowing, because really, in that sense, The Matrix in its original instantiation in the film is kind of the same as Plato's Cave. Right? Yeah. Like it is people who sincerely believe that the simulation that they're in, which is which we learned through later movies, is like nineteen ninety nine because that's kind of when things were the best for people. <laughs> and, it, right. and it is kind of yeah. funny. It is yeah. kind of funny now to think about like yeah, like that was before nine eleven. That was before the war on terror. That was before the financial meltdown of two thousand eight. That was before a lot of like the kind of it was before Trump. It was before a lot of this encroachment into this weird new technocratic form of censorship that the big tech companies are doing. Like, yeah, even now, if we had to make a simulation, I'd probably pick ninety nine. <laughs> yeah that was a good yeah. decade that was a good decade it's kind of like the fall of of communism the berlin wall there was a, a sense of triumphalism mm-hmm. we hadn't yet become you know bitter with our own success we were still <laughs> happy about it yeah yeah so that's just a funny note along the way but in its original instantiation it is really the same thought experiment just in a modern context as plato's cave right like the people in the matrix aren't living in reality as stipulated by the film and plato's point is that people are looking at shadows on the wall as stipulated by his thought experiment and we the the listener or the viewer have to like kind of analogize how closely we feel like the movie the matrix or the plato's cave analogy is actually a imperfect but more or less correct representation of what it's like to become educated i suppose right 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 and and i think it is i think the reason why the matrix is so famous and plato's cave analogy is so famous is that it is again more or less has fidelity to reality. So I want to go. I want to go into that deeper. Why okay. do you think it, that it has a parallel with reality of being educated? I like this. This is a good. Well, because I, because solipsistic creatures that we are by default, I can remember times in my life where I felt less knowledgeable than I do now. I can. Right. I can recall teachers, books, movies that have expanded my thinking on a subject. I remember talking to people that had a different opinion than I did, that once I listened to them, I was like, oh, that point actually kind of makes sense. And so we kind of all know 
I mean, I think these things can be demonstrated very easily. Like if you if you came across a person who said their car was empty of gas and instead of going to put petroleum in it, they put orange juice because right. because it's a liquid, right? Like imagine the lack of knowledge about combustion that uh, because gas is a liquid, that must mean any liquid can make your car go. Right? right. Like if we were right. coming across that level of like Plato's cave analogy really sparkles under that scenario. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So, right. so uh, because again, you could say like, it's a crude example, but all you need is a liquid, right? Like it's like your level of analysis is not correct uh, yeah. to make. Yeah. But again, only if you're trying to solve the problem of making your car work, right? Right, <laughs> Which, right. So what why do we care if our cars solve? work? <laughs> like these, these kind of questions, they have to just kind of arise out of human life that more or less people seem to be interested in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the Matrix itself, there's a sanctimonious take on this where it's like, yeah, everybody else was in the Matrix and now I'm not. I've been red pilled, uh, motherfucker. Right. That kind yeah, of like, I know the truth. Bro-y, bro-y guy yeah. might think like that. I think the more vital point like a Neo and Morpheus is that they realize that they themselves are in the matrix. So I think one of the points that is kind of lost in Plato's cave analogy that I really love, because so again, like in these thought experiments, so much emphasis is put on the person who leaves the cave and comes back. What I think is so beautiful about human life is that take the cave analogy from someone who didn't leave the cave Right. And this other person comes back in and starts telling them about the real world, the non shadows. And you're like, maybe a lot of people don't want their illusions, but there are some who listen and they're like, wow, how many people leave the cave after? After right. they hear that person. Because the person who left the cave at some point was in the cave too. Right. Like the yeah. Um, yeah. Morpheus and Trinity were in the Matrix and Neo only. Neo's curious about it, about leaving the Matrix. So I don't know exactly what I'm trying to answer your question as, but I think it's um, because we can remember past iterations of our own thinking that we can look back on now and be like, oh, I, I wasn't quite right about that. I shouldn't have been as dogmatic or as full of conviction because I didn't know this other thing. And so like that kind of, again, as a metaphor, that kind of flywheel way of thinking about your own vulnerabilities mentally can keep you humble in the face of certainty around this, you know, in the matrix, this is all that there is kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it also has to be noted that in the, again, in the conceit of the matrix film, there's an explicit element of slavery to it. And I don't think people want to be slaves. No, no, they don't want to be, I mean, it's kind of funny watching it now when he pulls up, like, we've been made into a battery. Mm -hmm. Like, at the time, now it's like, oh, yes, of course, that's what The Matrix is about. But when you first watch it, the horror of that idea, I think, really made people think. Like, Mm -hmm. people were fascinated by that idea. And I guess for me, I have so often seen this as a way of demeaning people right so often people are like oh they're still stuck in the matrix or you know now this term that's used a lot on the internet sheeple right people who are just going along with the system and part of me wanted to make like a, a bit of a case for the people who stay in the system right who mm-hmm. stay in the illusion because it feels safe it, it not only does it feel safe 
in some ways, it's better to believe in that illusion. The life that the people in the matrix live in a lot of ways is a lot more enjoyable and, and from a sensory perspective, pleasurable than the life that the people are living outside of the matrix where they're being hunted by machines constantly and they have to eat this gruel. And of course, the question then is why from a, let's just call it an existential perspective, is it better to live in a reality that's so far degraded from the fantasy? I don't know that like the matrix doesn't really answer that as a movie because it creates Neo as this savior who's freeing the enslaved humanity, which, you know, is assumed to be a moral good, right? Mm -hmm. It's assumed that, you know, humanity being trapped is bad. Humanity being free is good. But now we're existing even in this time of collectivism where freedom is not something that we care about nearly as much as protecting one another and, and keeping each other safe and secure. And so the question is, why would someone want to be free and existing in this subpar reality than not free and experiencing all of the joys of delusion? <laughs> well, to go back to the hobby horse of this podcast, I think the point of the matrix is like contrasting Neo and Cypher and the fact yeah. that all of the people in the matrix who don't know that they're in the matrix are kind of like unjudgeable because of the conceit of the film is that they just don't have a chance of knowing that they're in the matrix. Like it's certainly not irrational to behave in the way that you do in the matrix. If you don't know you're in the matrix, right? Yeah, it's supremely rational. So the real contrast between that kind of question in the film is between Neo and Cypher and the hobby horse of this podcast being choice and conscious choice as the most important factor in all of this, because the like the Oracle, the Oracle tells Neo he's not the one, not because he's not the one, but because he needs to choose it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if she tells him that he is, he loses the motivation to be the one. The construct of the movie makes it difficult to use the language properly. But even though it is destined in the program for him to be the anomaly that is the one that can overcome this kind of stuff, he needs to not know that because he won't actually do it, even though he might right. actually. Right. Right. Like, <clears throat> yeah, for some yeah. reason that, again, I don't think is totally explained in the movie. The Oracle knows that neo needs to choose it which is why she tells him he isn't so that he which won't yeah it does make is. it a, a fundamental yeah it does make it a fundamental choice is everything yes. in this right it's, it's the red pill blue pill the oracle will you will you go back into the matrix to save morpheus or will you let him die and then the choice that the oracle gives him one of you is going to die who's it going to be yeah. now I think Cypher's character works in the movie, but I actually, so again, like I mentioned before, how the cave allegory of Plato's, we always think of the person leaving the cave and coming back. We don't think so much about the person still in the cave and what they think when they hear the person who comes back and talk. I like to yeah. turn the knobs on these thought experiments a little bit. You know what? In the movie and in the culture, when we talk about the red pill and the blue pill, all the emphasis is on the red pill. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk for a minute about the blue pill. I mean, this isn't controversial because it's a philosophical point, but I don't think people can actually get blue pilled. If you are asking someone 
the question between a red pill and a blue pill, they're already red pilled. Um, Interesting. Once it's even occurred in your consciousness to think that it might be a choice between knowing reality and knowing a matrix, you're already out of the matrix. You're already out of some kind of matrix. So in the mechanics of the film, it just so happens to work that Cypher can go back into the matrix and can be rich and and have all the hedonistic. Well, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that. Right? Would he would he get it or would they just kill him? We don't know. Well, yeah, of course. There's always that right. element of it. But I'm just saying, I don't think you can actually be cipher in real life. There's this line by Thomas Paine: "A mind once stretched by an idea can never return to its original shape." Again, in the conceit of the film a red pill versus a blue pill that you take, it's a kind of a medical procedure and it's instantaneous. Whereas in real life, consciousness is raised incrementally, right? Like we're getting red pilled every second of the day by a new thing we're learning, right? Like we're always kind of expanding. It's not, it's a process in real life, not just a pill you take at any given moment. I don't think it's possible psychologically to return to a state of ignorance that you've already overcome. It's kind of like saying, it'd be like telling, a there have legal precedents, it'd be like telling a jury an irrelevant fact about a, a defendant, let's say, and then saying, oh, never mind, that's off the record, don't think about that anymore. Right. right? Well, once right. you say yeah. it, it's clearly in there, like, you can't take back people's psychology, right? Like, that's just impossible yeah. to do. And so I think that there's an element of this in the blue pill is that you can't actually be cipher. You can't actually go, you can betray your ideals. You can live with the guilt, like Raskolnikov in yep. Crime and Punishment, yep. but you can't actually psychologically be blue-pilled. I don't think that's possible. So right. again, it works in the mechanics of the matrix because it's like a procedure. In reality, you could. I mean, this is what brain damage could kind of be considered as, right? Like you do meet people who have brain damage that forget things that they've learned. And I'm not talking about like, memory lapse i'm talking about like it's not accessible in their brain anymore to come out with that and so i present that as a as a hypothesis is that all of the attention is paid onto the red pill i think the blue pill deserves a little attention and i actually my contention would be and i'm willing to hear thoughts on this i don't think it's psychologically possible to be blue pilled because if you're even asking the question there has been an element of the red pill already given to you or yeah. absorbed by you well, and it, I've, I've, I've recently been reading uh, Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death, and he has the three kinds of despair, right? He's yeah. got uh, the people who don't know they're in despair, the people who are in despair in the sense that they don't want to be themselves, right? And then the people who are in despair to be themselves, mm -hmm. right? And I actually think it's not a terrible parallel for this movie, right? Because the people who are... I mean, there's that line where Morpheus is like, you know, dead bodies being ground up and melted, or basically like ground into a soup to feed the the new, like the new born babies, yeah, and like yeah, yeah, recycled yeah. basically, right? And like that's a pretty despairing situation, right? Is that you you spend your whole life in these little pods, and then at the end of your life, you are and a very literal disposed. take on reincarnation. Yeah, you're disposed of to feed the next generation, although in, I guess, a sense, isn't that how it all we all are? But they don't know they're in that despair. Mm -hmm. right? They don't know they're in such a, a horrible situation. Uh, whereas 
you know, Cypher does. He 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 knows the situation that humanity's in, but also that he's in. Mm-hmm. And he's doesn't want to be that. So he's despaired of being that thing. And then we have Morpheus and Morpheus has faith. Mm-hmm. Morpheus believes in something and is trying to manifest that that thing into reality, which is a promise, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 interesting that this this story is so much about uh, reality, but then it flips it on its head, and it's like, well, yes, red pill, blue pill, but the oracle says we need him so much. What will we do without him? You know, there's the moment where Trinity's horrified by the idea of having to kill him and how much they need him and all this kind of stuff, right? Why do they need Morpheus so much? It's because the only hope once you've escaped, once you've taken the red pill, let's say, is faith. You have to believe in something, mm. which is funny because the despair of the people in the Matrix, let's say, if we're, t- if we're using Kierkegaard as an overlay on this, the despair of the ignorant is actually a very... they're the furthest away from reality that's possible. Whereas Morpheus has completely overcome despair with faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and we see him leading Neo down that path to where eventually Neo takes on faith and becomes the one. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and is able to overcome the matrix, but not only overcome the matrix to manipulate the matrix. So go, going back to what you were saying about can we be red pilled or blue pilled, or well, can we be, can we go back? No, but we have. I think we have to go forward into something greater than our past ignorance, but not just by knowing more. But then it's like just knowing more isn't enough, right? Just just having the expand. It isn't enough to to get out of the matrix. Mm. Yeah. Right. You need you need a reason to keep going after you're out, mm-hmm. because and, and I kind of think of this as as life itself. Like Tolstoy once wrote, you know, where there is life, there is faith. And I'm not saying it has to be faith in a god or faith in or a particular, but you, it has to be a belief in something. It has to be a desire for something, mm-hmm. because as Jordan Peterson says often, right? It's like, there's lots of reasons to be bitter about existence, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of reasons to become upset and angry and, and like Cypher, there's a lot of reasons to want to go back into ignorance, right? There's a lot of reasons to say, well, now that I know all of this, maybe I didn't know, maybe I didn't want to exist at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or at least want all of this knowledge to be erased because it's too painful. And there's a lot of, painful information out there if you look at it Mm -hmm. but maybe the answer to that is that you have to have faith in something you have to believe in something yeah and i mean i think i do think that there's definitely an existential strain in all of this very clearly even technically because cypher kind of is living out the side of camus that we bulk at because you know camus writes the only real philosophical question is suicide. And once you choose yeah. once you choose not suicide, you're responsible for that world now that you have chosen for yourself. And in that framing of it, Cypher chooses suicide. He chooses to not be having to live with that uncertainty. He goes back to the certainty. 
kind of yeah. element. And again, you're right, like in the movie plot, he has no leverage on the agents anymore. He's already no. given them what they want. Why would they possibly the only reason they might honor his um request is because they don't actually have emotion. Right. <laughs> so they yeah, might they, they might be programmed. Yeah. Like unless they see that him back in the matrix could potentially violate the matrix again at some point, And that would be why not. Like they might just have a, no reason to uh, worry about that. But yeah, I do think you're right. I think that I just really love thinking about this movie even more as we talk, because the vitality of the matrix is in the metaphor of it. You might think leaving the matrix is the goal. Well, actually, when you realize that leaving the matrix is the starting line, now yeah. you actually have to go live. What are the people of Zion going to do once they defeat the machines? They got to go live still, right? And this is why like life is so recursive. What we think is the end of something is actually just the beginning of something else. And taking on that mantle is what being a person is, I suppose, right? Like, And I think that that's the Morpheus kind of um, vitality is that Morpheus you know obviously morpheus believes in the in the horrible nature of the matrix and being a slave is not what people want uh, what many people don't want they do want freedom uh and he believes in neo but he also is like representing the inspirational archetype character right like there are these people there are people who live who can win over even the most angry cynic right there might yeah. be a very small number of people in the world that are unwinoverable their cynicism and their despair and their bitterness just goes too deep but i think one of the archetypes of the person who believes beyond that like i see socrates as kind of this character morpheus certainly plays this role of the person who believes in humanity believes in the spirit of the human to go find out more and to go live more even if we don't know exactly what that looks like existence is worth it no matter what no matter what we have to bear and on, on the best we can do is to try and improve it and there's like an inspiration to morpheus there's it's clear that he's a leader it's clear that he's inspired his crew because it's so powerful as a metaphor like it's hard not to be inspired when you listen to wayne gretzky talk about hockey kind of thing right like just right. the way that he is so eternally optimistic about hockey and the underlying values that make people good hockey players which translate into being potentially good people there's just these people in the world that even if you've had a terrible day and you're sarcastic and cynical there's something about their sincerity that even if even if you're in a recursive matrix that you can never get out of you kind of are attracted to that mindset yeah, like it's interesting as life progresses to to kind of watch the different ways that people take towards that, right? To find that inspiration, right? I guess in a sense, maybe that inspiration is just another word for faith, right? Inspiring us to to not despair, inspiring us to keep going, inspiring us to freedom, to 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 make choices, right? Because I think one of the interesting things about despair or or the where cypher gets but also just kind of the the general hopelessness of even facing up to the agents let's call it everyone who's ever faced up to an agent has died right and yet there's this belief in morpheus that no someone will be able to face up with them and beat them right there there that that will happen even though there's no evidence of it happening and i think often in life 
I have a friend who's uh, one of his best friends is right now, uh, you know, 32, been struck down by liver disease and is, you know, in a coma and dying, right? And you can ask yourself, like, that's hard, right? That's, that's something that makes you kind of want to hate reality, mm. right? Kind of want to go back into the matrix of ignorance and of thinking whatever it is you want to think, but like that the universe is fair or that it cares or, or, or things like that, right? But it's the people who come along and, and inspire us to keep going even when we see things like that. And when reality is you know, on a much lesser level, eating this horrible gruel that then, you know, most set has this it's a funny thing about chicken, right? And it's the human capacity to take horrific experiences and transcend them mm -hmm. that I find fascinating. Why are we able to do that? I, I don't know, but it's probably the best thing we've got. <laughs> I mean, this is a completely different topic, but the why of that is is almost like missing the point in that it just does happen, right? It's just kind yeah. of built. It's maybe it's inscrutable, but it's built into the DNA somehow in human psyches. Uh, maybe not everyone, but certainly a lot, and it becomes archetypal, uh, like you say, archetypal, which the Matrix has like the archetype of sacrifice and belief and choice, right? Like these are the fundamental subconscious elements of the film that I think are so powerful. And another one that just occurred to me, maybe here's a good example of why this movie I think is so resonant to people and so valuable in kind of like conscious living even, is that, um, yeah, in The Matrix, the machines feed off of us like batteries. And in a kind of parallel sense or a metaphorical sense, that or, that's a good metaphor for like how modern media feeds off of um, clickbait kind of thing, right? Right. Like clickbait type outrageous headlines, things that are intentionally made the way they are to be, to tap into a more kind of like animalistic side, more outrage side, like the machine of the computers and the internet and media outlets and, and, and Facebook and Twitter, like all the groups, they're organized and they literally get money. So they get energy out of us, the batteries. We feed them through our emotions, through our psychological habits that can, they can monetize basically, right? Mm -hmm. Except that once we realize that, once we see the glitch in the matrix there, which can be pointed out by people like Tristan Harris, the conscience of Silicon Valley, the guy who made the social dilemma documentary. He's on all podcasts talking about how these like companies are intentionally making algorithms to play on your weak psychological weaknesses. Yeah. Once you kind of, I use him as an example of someone who maybe red pills people, let's say. Once that happens, once I know that this outrage clickbaity shit is out there, can I choose to ignore it, to not get outraged? Can I choose the neo path instead of the cipher path of not feeding those machines with my battery? And I like, I like that. And I my like point that. is, that's really good. Yes, I can. I can choose that. I can see. Yeah. I can, well, A, I can just stop looking at headlines. <laughs> I can yes, not, I can not open the apps that those show up and I cannot scroll through the media that puts those up, that glorifies it. 
But even if I do, I can choose to not get angry about it. That could yeah. I cannot feed the machine. I cannot click it. That kind of stuff. It brings us back to probably one of my favorite podcasts that we ever did, which is uh, East of Eden, which is Thou Mayest. Mm -hmm. So right? I think, yeah, like as the matrix in its vitality is a metaphor, and especially because it's a metaphor about technology, which has only become more indicative in our life, is that really, I guess the point would, if I had to put it in a bumper sticker, it's like, if you want to leave the matrix, start living more consciously. Right. Right. And then if you want to leave the next matrix that you are in because of your increased conscious living, live even more consciously. <laughs> and then if, and like knowing that it'll never end necessarily, but then that's the kind of Morpheus element of like, it doesn't need to end. It just needs to keep getting better somehow through our integration with the world kind yeah. of thing. I think that that's why, probably that's why the matrix remains so relevant to people and is continually mentioned is because it's so hybridized as a metaphor with technology and with how we interact with technology and even to now. Yeah, and it's got that feel to it too, like that aesthetic of of just technology and humans interacting and and the the one dystopian possibility of how we like and I think we all if we're uh, if we're taking the red pill realize just how technology has how much it's taken from us to some degree mm -hmm. right i maybe the generation that has comes after you and i not so much because it's just all encompassing but i remember being a lot happier to some degree before all of this happened right before i was before i was even aware of all of the other things that people could do and just was enjoying the world that i lived in mm-hmm and I know that's why a lot of people do the whole unplug, right? <laughs> Literally, there, there's there's another <laughs> metaphor, right? I mean, in a sense, I mean, obviously, yeah. there's unplugging the the gadget or the computer, but <laughs> that's that's a matrix. That's a matrix. Unplugging from the matrix. Well, I think it, sure. one of the reasons it's so easy is because it makes so visual the metaphors, right? Yeah. Like the metaphors of technology are so accessible to us because they have a they have a real life analog. <laughs> yeah right yeah and we're exactly. visual creatures if we see it we can imagine it better we have a podcast called really true fiction we love metaphors <laughs> hey that's my really question for you david is what's a meta for anyway <laughs> nothing what's a meta well, with you <laughs> speaking of which uh, it's it's interesting how archetypical this story is like how the, there's such an intentionality around having the savior figure, having the, the hero, the hero's journey. This is the same journey as Frodo and this, it's the same journey as, well, not the same journey as Anakin, but you know, the chosen one. These are, these are very old archetypes that are being used by the matrix to, I think, sell the story as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of that? Every little part of it is so well-crafted to make us feel a certain way. Because even when you were talking about Morpheus, I made a little note about how even though all the humans in the Matrix are human, in the Matrix, they see you as an enemy because they don't know 
that you are a friend, let's say, or another human. They just see you in the context of the matrix, not in the context of the real world. In the same way right. that the people in Plato's cave get mad at the person who comes back and tells them about reality because they just don't have the context to understand that it's a friend, not an enemy. And what I really liked about I don't know if Morpheus said it specifically, but I mentioned I compared Morpheus to Socrates earlier. Is that one of Socrates's, um, like, why I think he was such a great humanist, even, is that he believed in the people who he would still call in the cave's ability to leave the cave no matter what. Socrates was quite contemptuous of the kind of leaders of Athens who didn't think that the stupid classes could ever improve, let's say, kind of. Right, Socrates right. has a line, it's like, this is why I think a hatred of um, reason and argument betrays a hatred of humanity, because it right. fundamentally removes the belief in people to be able to utilize those things that we say we can do. And well, um, that, seg that segues into the thing Which that is I Morpheus, too. Morpheus yeah. wants to rescue as many as possible, even the ones... he. This is the wisdom of Morpheus, is that he realizes that the people in the Matrix who are right now their enemies aren't actually their enemies and he wants to still help them even if they're fighting against him well and that's kind of one of the moral dilemmas that isn't really brought up that much is like how many humans they just kill throughout the the movie <laughs> kind of willy-nilly to a degree uh basically any of the police forces and all of this stuff there's yeah. this they value human freedom so much but they don't seem to value human life that much well i mean um the yeah, that's true. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It has to be. A, but, I mean, that's a conceit of the movie to make it a dramatic story. Exactly. It's, and it's, a, it's a storytelling. You could thing. also like point out that the agents do that a lot more frivolously than the human characters do <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like the oh, agents absolutely. care even less about human life than uh, like Morpheus, Neo and Trinity. But yeah, you're right. For they sure. do go in with guns too. <laughs> but but uh, actually... What I but think maybe the, maybe the humans don't actually die in real life if they're still plugged into the matrix or, or like if there's still a battery form. I don't know. Maybe they specify that. Like if they're still yeah. powered by the machines and they die in the matrix, maybe the machines can just reboot them again or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, Morpheus does say that line, the, the body cannot survive without the mind. Yeah, that's true. So anyway. Uh, but but actually, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about on a that you actually brought up a little bit that mm -hmm. I think is an incredibly interesting note. So Socrates has this belief, you know, that the the people in the cave can come out of the cave, and that to him is the ultimate good, right? Mm -hmm. Is to leave the cave, and to Morpheus, the ultimate good is to leave the matrix, to live in reality, despite what reality is. But I I found it interesting the. And I, th I think probably the monologue that has stuck with me the most in this entire film is actually Agent Smith's monologue to Morpheus about mm -hmm. humanity. Yeah. And I wanted to, to touch on that because I think it's a very, it's the opposite in many ways of the Socrates kind of Promethean, let's call it really true fiction view of humanity. But it is not to put ourselves in too bad of company. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> but it has become so prevalent in, in the human or in humanity's understanding of itself right now. Like I would mm. say maybe, maybe more in the West, but potentially generally, I saw a statistic recently that said 54% of people under the age of 25 
believe that humanity is going to destroy the world before they die. Hmm. Um, but anyway, it's the it's the great uh, and very poignant discussion that Smith has with Morpheus where he's like, I realize that humans aren't mammals, right? Because mammals always reach equilibrium with their environment. No, humans, uh, humans don't. They just keep using material and breeding and replicating and, and until they, you know, consume all the resources in their habitat and have to move on. And then he says, there's another thing in nature that does this it's called a virus and human we are the cure and humanity is the disease and it's this very uh sinister dark tyrannical view of of humanity that is presented by by agent smith but what's interesting at least to me is there seems to be this prevailing view among a lot of people now that humanity is the problem and that we are a virus on the world and I wonder if a movie like The Matrix could have the same impact that it had back then now with this new view that like maybe maybe Agent Smith is the good guy, right? <laughs> maybe maybe he's the one who actually understands what we are and maybe maybe we don't deserve to uh the the elevated place we have in existence or on or in material existence. Well, I want to know your thoughts on, on that concept and whether you see that kind of within culture, this, this anti-humanism that seems to be rising, I would say. Well, yeah. I mean, before I try to answer another softball you've thrown my way. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that scene also really stuck out to me because even before that, Smith says that they had created other matrixes before that were actually easier and more about utopia or perfection, and people didn't like that. No, right? they rejected it. Yeah, they, they, they knew rejected it. Wasn't it. Real. Uh, his line, like, humans want pain and suffering. That line actually reminded me a lot of uh, Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky's insight through his character, Notes from Underground, that people are so attached to their autonomy that they will destroy something just to feel like they have some control over it, right? Like the yeah. the, abil the ability to feel like you have some sort of control over your life and your surroundings and your environment is so important to people that they would destroy utopia because of that need, which, you know, again, by the by, might be a psychological insight not well thought out in utopianist thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, maybe. or, or knows, social right? planning, let's say. <laughs> right? We'll talk about that kind of thing more, but that's not exactly your question. I would say probably the first answer I'd give that might sound glib, but I think isn't glib if you think about it deeply, is that let's say that 54% of people you talked about that think humanity is the problem. I bet you of those people, 99% of them would, if they had to refine it, I'll refine it for them, would say, it's more other people that are the problem, not me. <laughs> right? right. It's right. So anti-humanism, I think, can almost always be seen as anti-other humans. Right. Not necessarily right. the species, right? I think that all those people would still find the good guys and the bad guys to split the world up into, which is the tale as old as time for our species. Yeah, yeah, the tribalism of our souls. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there is a real problem in all of this that Smith is getting at and that 
at their best, the anti-humanists might be uncovering. And I do think it is something that there is an element of human nature and probably of our structures that I think Eric Weinstein calls the embedded growth obligation, ego. Yeah, Um, yeah. We need to keep growing always. Now, I think just logically that's impossible on a finite planet. That is one of the reasons I think space travel will need to happen at some point in our species' (laughs) future is that there does seem to be something inscrutable about human nature that needs to keep growing. And one of the proposed solutions to this that I find fascinating, I've heard Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying talk about, is how to simulate growth psychologically, but without it affecting the material world to a degree that it becomes detrimental. Basically, how to not externalize the psychology of growth into right. pollution, let's say, or or anything. And so I haven't read their book yet, but I, I think I've heard them talk about things like you develop that growth through learning a musical instrument or starting a podcast or like we talk about like what are the thing hobbies that are not too destructive, how to simulate the feeling of growth internally or consciously without it necessarily having to be planetary or environmental all the time. And I think that there's something really worth meditating on on that, is that is there a way to capture the feeling of closing a land deal by closing a a new song I learned deal? <laughs> right. <laughs> that kind right. of thing, right? Like and I think I think it's possible. I do think that's true and I and I think Smith Agent Smith takes the most pessimistic take this is a common fallacy, I think, to take one attribute of a thing and make it the master attribute of a thing or the only attribute of a thing. Right. And maybe that's the fallacy that these, like, I'm not arguing whether or not, uh, you know, climate change are happening, is happening or pollution is bad. I, that's a really good point. It's it's focusing on that and being like, we're destroying the planet. We're horrible. You know, humanity is awful. Um, you brought up Jordan Peterson earlier. He talks yeah. about this a lot. He talks about how one of the things that makes communism too easy for the power hungry is that there isn't just one or two attributes about a people that they could be considered an oppressor or an oppressed person. There are actually hundreds. And all yeah. you need to do is find one and you can throw them in the gulag. And that's what happened, right? If you want in reality, there are all sorts of dynamics in the kind of relationships we have with other people. You know, I mean, you have power over your employees as an employer, but you don't have power over your supervisor, right? So which one do we pick? Well, the one we need right now. (laughs) Right. Right? Right. And that's also what the people who throw people in the gulag do. Well, you are, you have power in this one context, therefore you are an oppressor, therefore you are fit for the gulag kind of thing. Right, right. Totally, totally not paying any attention to all of the other factors. That this is, I mean, this is an aside, but um, in one of one of my early episodes on the liberal soul I did, I talk about Adam Gopnik's book, A Thousand Small Sanities. And he talked about how one of the things that kind of differentiates a liberal from a utopianist or like a progressive is progressives will be opportunistically determinist or opportunistic in their 
indictments of a particular person or attribute. They pick the one attribute while ignoring the 50 others that might mitigate or make the point more complex than they're willing to see it. And so, whereas that is not fallibility, that's certainty. Yeah. Like the idea that Smith has that it's a one-to-one ratio, human beings to virus to destruction. Now that might be true over a span of 5 billion years, but it's certainly not true over the span of a couple hundred or even a couple thousand. And what problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. Like, and, and ultimately it's funny because Smith is trying to solve the problem of he hates humanity and he wants to destroy it because in a sense, he hates having to exist with them, right? <laughs> and ironically, Whereas, by the end, Smith shows the machines that Neo could potentially be an ally. <laughs> because, yes, yes. Because Smith stands to destroy not just the human world, but also the machine world. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so there's lots. There's lots in all of that to, um, to Yeah, there's, to there, you could have a whole series of podcasts on but um we would be remiss before we end to not talk a little bit about neo specifically in all of right. this and um i think it's hilarious casting keanu reeves as neo because even though i like i obviously love keanu reeves but he's like one of the most understated actors so yeah. he's got this like central role in one of the biggest movies ever and he's kind of like talks to the least <laughs> and he's yeah, kind of like he's the strong silent type. He's like there's a there's a like I think he's a good actor in a kind of funny way but there's parts of this movie where he almost looks like he's thinking like why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's and, an uh, and then he talks and he's back in it. I'm like, "Oh, okay." So as we learn, you know, in the in the subsequent films, Neo is an anomaly that is an inevit- is a statistical inevitability in the Matrix, whatever. But again, it's just fun. Like Neo is an anagram of one, and yeah, it also true, means new. True. So you take the Matrix too seriously, it doesn't work. You take it as a metaphor; it's quite vibrant. So, what were your thoughts on the main character of this movie? Well, I mean, the hero's journey is so important to humanity. Right, like I, th- I, I would argue the hero's journey is the most important story we've ever told, because overcoming our circumstances to to become better, to take control of our own lives, our own destiny through choice, let's let's call it, uh, and making those choices to stand up against evil, and even if the evil is overwhelming, and even to the point of death, right, is kind of what has got us past being animals, I think. Mm -hmm. I I think it's that story. And so I think there's a reason that it's so profound and that they have all these layers of meaning because layers of meaning are what humans are looking for. We're we're looking for meaning in in our lives and we all kind of want, we want that adventure. We want to be asked we want we want to get the phone call that says meet meet us under the bridge and now let's go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. Or follow we want, the white rabbit. Yeah, we want to follow the white rabbit. We want to, you know, step out of Bag End and go down the road. We want and going back a little bit, but but this is to your point. I think that these are the stories that do define our generation. Mm-hmm. Right, these are the stories that we kind of live our lives by in a sense. 
like when things are bad for, or, or people come to me and, and they're, and we're talking about like how crazy the world has become and how horrible COVID is and how it's transforming society and maybe ways that at least from my perspective are very bad, you know, well, how could you not quote Gandalf saying, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for them yeah, to decide, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> well, I might argue that some of the people you've referenced, that 54% of 25 or under who feel despairing about humanity or younger people who have a lot of moral energy, like they are also trying to find their own hero's journey. Yeah. And the desire to do that is so intense that it can be directed anywhere. Maybe Smith, in his own way, has his own more hero's journey that he's on to destroy, and it and it and it really does come down to like, yeah. But what? Not only again, there's a line from Popper. It's like, yeah, we want the heroes. We want our heroes. We want heroism, but heroism is only as good as its cause. Yeah, and um, I think he makes a point in Open Society and its enemies that like. A gangster, like he's talking about like 1930s, you know, New York gangster types. Yeah, like I, yeah. there can be a lot of heroism in, in gangsterism, but that doesn't make gangsters heroes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think part of the hero's journey that also needs to be really articulated is that, yeah, we desire that feeling, but we also need to think really carefully about the particular cause that we're engaging in to make that heroism come out and and that comes from the choice right like neo could choose to fight for the machines right yes and he adapts he fights with the machines against smith when smith becomes the greater evil kind of thing and he could choose to let morpheus die and hold and cling to his own life Mm -hmm. yeah right he wouldn't yeah he didn't need to risk it no I mean, no one would have, no one, no one even would have been upset with him if he hadn't gone back in, mm-hmm. right? And it's interesting to note, in the again, we didn't watch these movies for the podcast, although I did watch them. Is that in the second and third movies, the counselors of Zion, you know, the elders, the wise people, they understand the value of Morpheus to the people. Yes, right? they understand the value of the person who will go risk their own skin to go find a way to defeat these things that are trying to kill them. Now it becomes so obvious in a movie sense. The Morpheus types are the people who inspire us to go think carefully about what we're doing and, and improve the lot of ourselves and others in, in ways that are hopefully conscious, not unconscious. I mean, I think really the matrix is best answered by David Foster Wallace's speech on this yes. is water, that kind of yeah, thing. So like, absolutely. if you want to get in 20 minutes, better articulated what we're saying here for the last hour and a half, go watch that speech. <laughs> yeah, But I think yeah. it really does come back down to that conscious living. I liked what you said earlier. It, it, it comes down to the question of choice, mm-hmm. right? Are you going to make choices or are you not? Because mm-hmm. I mean, not making a choice is a kind of choice. Mm-hmm. That was Camus' point. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. well. And and Sam Harris has talked about that. Like, if you choose to stay in bed, that's still a choice. <laughs> to choose to yeah. do nothing is still a choice that we care about. So, yeah, I really I, I enjoyed Keanu as Neo, but I I liked I liked that Neo didn't have to be super charming to still be interesting. I guess like he didn't need to be to me a, like a lot of the heart and soul of this film is Morpheus. 
Neo was good, but he didn't have to be, you know, what Morpheus was. No, agreed. Any last things we haven't talked about this movie or maybe a last thought on it, a wrap up thought? I guess um, when I think about this movie, right, uh, it's interesting to see the development that we've talked about before of when you're young, you watch it for the action and the fun and the coolness. And I guess as you develop mentally, you can still watch it for those things and enjoy them. But what I really enjoyed was the thoughts behind it and the and the story. Just like Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. What What is the story trying to convey here? And ultimately, I, I think I used to think that it was trying to convey that there's the people that are inside the Matrix and there's the people that are outside the Matrix and the people that are outside the Matrix are better, more enlightened. And I liked what you had to say. And I think I'd like to reiterate it that, you know, when you go back into the cave, how you treat the people in the cave says more about you than it does about them. Mm-hmm. Right. So if, if you really have reached a level of enlightenment in which you have a better understanding of reality, let's say, than the majority of people, which, you know, is a fairly audacious thing to believe from the beginning, but let's say you do, (laughs) and you're trying to do that Promethean, bring back the flame to people to help them. I think it's essential to do it with a sense of humility and arguably also, like, don't just come back and tell everyone it's horrible and everything's awful. And like, the reality is, I guess, okay, this is what I'll say. What Morpheus offers in this movie, and I do think he's the hero of this movie, is not just a red-pilled reality that's awful. Mm -hmm. And this is where the red-pill metaphor breaks down a little bit because that's what people are saying. If you've been red-pilled, you know what's real and you have knowledge, right? But that isn't what makes Morpheus a hero. And it isn't what makes Morpheus someone that, where we think it's tragically the idea of losing him. What Morpheus represents is after showing people what reality is, believing that there's a better way to be and that there's a purpose to work towards. Mm -hmm. And I think people like, that's what people need from leaders. That's, that's what we need more now more than ever is let's say in the time of COVID We don't need leaders telling us that they're protecting us and keeping us safe or that how dangerous the virus is. We all know those things. We need someone telling us how we're going to get out of this and that there's going to be something on the other end worth having. Mm -hmm. And worth striving to. And I, and I, I think one of the things that the movie makes, not confusing exactly, but it has to be this way to make it a compelling movie, is that there's only one red pill, blue pill moment right? There's only one. There's a only one yeah. before and after. When in reality, in the way that they phrase it, there's like a red pill, blue pill moment every day, <laughs> right? Like it's a, exactly. it's an increasing amount of awareness about life that will never be finished. You can always get more red pilled. There could be a newer red pill that has a new thing that you haven't thought about. So again, it's a continuum more than a category. The movie has to make red pill, blue pill a category for the plot. But, but but like yeah but like in reality it's an ongoing recursive thing it's more complex than that as you often <laughs> like to say or you know it's the wrong level of analysis <laughs> yes 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 but no i definitely i just loved watching this movie again for yeah you're right like star wars i love it as a kid for all the explosions and the sound and the ships and the lightsaber and then as an adult i love it for the hero's journey and the archetypes same with the matrix right like but I have to admit, I did enjoy the nostalgia rush of like 
late 90s music, the kind of like computer graphic, the look of everything, even the clothes, the sunglasses, the style, the cars. The green numbers. There was something really like the, yeah. And, and just the, the palette of how like there's a green sheen to all of the Matrix moments and a kind of more grayish, but more reality looking to the outside the Matrix moments, you know. They even make the Matrix look nicer to us watching the movie yes. versus reality, yeah. right? And I thought that that's just such a great artistic touch to the aesthetic of this film. So it was such a rush. I hadn't, I probably, it's probably been a decade at least since I'd seen the Matrix. And so it was so good to watch it again. And yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. Again, we're recording this before Matrix Resurrections come out. It'll be really interesting to see what part of modern technology is incorporated into the new Matrix film, right? Because clearly the Matrix 4 is going to be aware of the fact that (laughs) the Matrix influenced the internet greatly. How how self-referential will it get? We'll see. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, (laughs) You know, like hopefully it doesn't go full scream. But I wouldn't mind like a little bit of Scream self-reference <laughs> for the Matrix <laughs> 4. So I want to say it's just so good to be doing this again, David. I really, yeah. really enjoyed. I've missed it a lot. And hopefully our dear listeners will enjoy having a new episode of Really True Fiction to listen to. So before we finish, David, you've mentioned that you have a new podcast out there. Why don't you True. tell us a little bit about Although that? Also, I've been on a short hiatus from it as well, but uh, since January, uh, a mutual cousin of Luke and I, who actually has been on his other podcast, started a podcast called The Canadian Story, where we talk about funnily enough, people's stories. So mm-hmm. not not really true fiction, really true life. <laughs> and RTL. Kind of, no, RTL and, and what kind of uh, what kind of experiences people have had as Canadians, what that means to them, what they love about our country. Uh, so you can find it uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the CAD story. And uh, on we're on uh, all of the major podcasting apps as well. So it's a fun one. It's totally different than this, but also, you know, pretty much along the same lines in the sense of talking about what the good life is and trying to articulate a better way to live. Oh, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And what about you, Luke? Why don't you share? I guess our listeners probably are aware. Well, probably many really true (laughs) fictioners will know that I've also started a new podcast called The Liberal Soul, where I talk to people about their loves and passions and interests and what it's like to be interested in the world and explore new ideas and new things, really an exploratory mindset. But then also I do some episodes solo where I talk about famous or interesting works in the history of liberal philosophy, because I find that really stimulating as well. So you can listen to that. And uh, I used to post new episodes of The Liberal Soul on Really True Fiction, but I've stopped doing that. So if you've listened to some but don't anymore, you'll just have to subscribe to The Liberal Soul to get new episodes, which I am still releasing there. So hopefully I will get really busy (laughs) with podcasting again. (laughs) That's the goal. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. But neither of those are this podcast. You have been listening to Really True Fiction. And again, you can find us on all major podcasting apps. And I really want to thank you for listening to another episode. And we're back, baby. Uh, my name is Luke We're Mason. back. <laughs> and my name is David Parker. <laughs> and uh, may the force be with you, David. And also with you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>